0: Due to technical difficulties, Pastor Rob's microphone cuts in and out throughout the entire sermon. We hope to have this resolved by next week. Um, if we haven't met before, my name's Rob. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, we have been in a family series, and we talked first about how our family tree and where we come from doesn't determine where we'll go. We um, then talked about family conflict and sibling rivalry. Um, last week, we talked that the key to parenting um, was really uh, focusing on our personal relationship with God. Are we having some problems? Is it me? Um, and then we talked about uh, how not only do we need to focus on our parenting relationship, our personal relationship with God, but then we also need to focus on the story of God and telling our kids the story of God. And so we come to conclusion with that series um, today and we had given out some bamboo trees as a, as a challenge. I'm looking for mine. I don't know if anyone else brought theirs but you know I thought, um, do you just want to bring up new batteries for me? I thought if, we, um, if we, we read a little bit online about how to care for bamboo trees and then put them, did a few of those things and then like we just kind of waited and saw how it worked, partially uh, technologically advanced. So anyway, my bamboo tree is not doing well. I guess is the moral of the story. They're supposed to grow like three inches a day. Mine has grown about four and a half inches in four and a half weeks, and one of them is turning kind of brown. That. Um, You can't just do a little bit of reading and then just kind of wait and see and then everything's going to be okay. And some of us have that same idea in parenting, like that same idea as approach to family. If we read a little bit over here and we watch some things that other people do over here, then we'll just turn out okay. But we start to look at um, our families and we start to look at our extended family and we see that there's people on our family tree that, that have fallen off most of them by choice. Um, maybe they intentionally did it, or, or maybe um, they made a series of choices that just continue to alienate and, alienate and alienate and alienate and alienate and alienate from the family. And uh, sometimes we even have a word for that. We call those people prodigals, and that comes from a story in the Bible where, where this son went up to his dad and in essence said, I wish you were dead. Will you give me my inheritance? And then he took it, and he went across the country and went somewhere else and and he didn't Skype, he didn't t- uh, chat, he didn't write, he didn't call. And uh, all that they saw was YouTube videos of him doing very inappropriate things. And so uh, his dad just waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited until the son came home. And some of you um, are waiting and waiting and waiting for figurative or literal prodigals. And others of you maybe have been that prodigal. And you've made decisions and decisions and decisions that have really alienated you from your family. And so as we kind of come to a close on this family series, I want to talk about today how we can get this right. I mean, I don't think there's just do these three steps and boom, you'll wind up with a perfect family, whether you're a parent or a sibling or a child. But I do think that the Bible talks about some things that, that can get this right I, when I was a youth pastor, I had a mom call me just in exasperation and anger, and she said, I just don't get it, Rob. I mean, I treated all my kids exactly the same, and why did this one just turn out so bad? And she kind of said it with that much venom, too. Even over the phone, I could tell that a vein was popping out in her fa- head, forehead. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't really want to answer that question, because what I wanted to say, well, each of your kids are unique. Each of your kids have special needs that they all have to have, and you can't treat them all the same. Uh, I don't think she wanted to hear that part. But anyway, like our bamboo trees, there are a few things, I think, that we can do as people. There's a few things, like we need sunlight and water, like for the bamboo A few things we can do for our family... That will help us get this I think, more right. Now, we live, I'm not saying culture's bad, but we live in this frantic, frenzied culture. And still, all the research shows that the number one influence for a child is their parents. And yet, study after study after study would show that, that we are spending less and less and less time with our kids or as families together. For example, um, couple different studies basically range from mom spending two hours a day with a child um, and dad spending an hour a day with a child, all the way down to, in 2006, the UK did a study and they said 19 minutes. 19 minutes a day was the time that parents spent with their children. And you think about, like, my dad used to, I love my parents, they did a pretty good job, and my dad used to read the newspaper after work and I'd come home and... I'd be like, Dad, guess what happened today? And he's like, hang on, I'm not done. But now, I, I think it's just a little different. Hey, Dad, can I, can I talk to you? Ah, uh, just a second. I just got one more email to write. Yeah, but, but this really cool thing happened. I know, I'll be there in a sec. Okay, wait, now, oh, somebody texted. I got a text in. Oh, wait, no, Angry Birds is on. Now I got to play. And, and so, our, our, our newspaper has just gotten smaller. But we still get distracted. And so, have any of us done time inventories on... Like, what do we actually do? How do we actually spend that time? And is it good time? And so, you know, today, it really isn't about whether it's two hours a day or whether it's 19 minutes a day. I think it's more about living a well-ordered life. So with that, if you have a Bible, um, turn to Colossians 3. Colossians 3 gives us some really great insight into what it means to live a well-ordered life. And this is applicable whether you're a parent, whether you're a kid, whether you're a sibling, whether you're anywhere. Um, This idea goes so much farther beyond just our small, intimate family. Um, Colossians 3.15, we'll start there and we'll just kind of read it through and then we'll go back over it. But Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since it's members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful... Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through the psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, for or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only with the, when their eye is upon you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. So whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, and not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be paid for their wrongs, for there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is fair and right, because you know you have a master in heaven. And so that's a big, big kind of admonishment, a big chunk of scripture. But as we look at this, we see that this writer is kind of tying it all together. Now, the people in Colossae were a little bit unique They were kind of on the edge of the Roman um, Empire. They had a very saturated Greek culture. They had almost no Jews that were among them and very few Christians that lived there. So their idea of a moral code was a little bit skewed towards like pantheism or the study of other gods or um, just idol worship or just crazy stuff. And so this writer doesn't use a lot of Old Testament references to talk about what he wants to say because these people wouldn't understand it. Whereas if you were to read the parallel of this, which is in Ephesians chapter 5, kind of going through verse 6, if you want to study that later, it's fun. um, That writer uses a lot of Old Testament stuff because those people have a lot of Jews among them. But these people don't, so they have kind of no foundation. And so he's going, this is what it means to live a well-ordered life. And he starts with just verse 15, um, God first. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. Let the message of Christ dwell in you. And this idea, you know, one commentator said that this is um, that that Jesus like needs to be this little umpire in your heart, like as you run the bases and slide in, it's safe or out. And 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 uh, I read somewhere else that, that that no, that's that's not it. This peace of Christ isn't just a yearning for like no conflict because you know families are fun aren't they the more time we spend with them and the longer they're around that there just inevitably comes conflict and then it goes beyond family because you know we would consider church family but then you know somebody says something or does something and all of a sudden there's conflict and and so now we have to you know as we talked at the first week and the second week, how our families do conflict is usually how we try and engage with them. So in mine, it was just louder. You didn't actually have to make a better point. You just made it louder. And in my wife's family, it was, there is no conflict. (laughs) My sister-in-law is agreeing with me. We're not from the family, but, you know, there's no conflict. Uh, Something's wrong? No, nothing's wrong. Silence. And so you can imagine, as my wife and I came together... How I just made points louder, which is very easy for me, and she made points. There is no. We bring our stuff, and whether it's in our family or whether it's in our church, we bring our stuff. And it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's not just saying, you know, we just need to figure out how, a way to have peace in this situation, or we just need to figure out how to, like, remove this conflict. The peace of Christ is what Jesus did on the cross, where he died for our sin. And he defeated that, and he defeated death, and he defeated evil. And though we still experience it now, he started a great reversal where where this writer is saying, what was once is no longer. So you don't have to argue, you don't have to do things around your house like your family did, like your family of ancestry. Christ brings in something new, and in this new place, he rules. And so the peace of Christ is like God's saving work in our life. And what it means to rule is like he comes and sets up shop and he drives. And so we don't when, when we're driving our car of life and we want God to be in our lives, he doesn't just come and sit in the passenger seat and be like, cool, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll be here when you die, you know, and it'll be great. You can kind of do whatever you want. He says, he steps in and he says, You want me to take over? Because I know the way. It'll be a lot better. It's not about less fun. It's not about um, rules. But I know the way. And so he invites us to step out of the driver's seat, come over into the passenger seat, and let him drive. That's what these verses are talking about. Is God driving our life where he dwells, where thankfulness pours out, where this peace isn't just the absence of conflict, but it's really this whole new understanding of our life. And if we start with that and and go for that, then, then everything else that we're going to talk about today completely, completely comes a little more naturally. The writer of Matthew says it really well when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God. You know, if you skip down to the end of Colossians, that verses we read, you'll see there's an exorbitant amount, I mean, just an unnatural amount talking about slaves and masters. And I just need to tell you that, that the slaves that they're talking about, is still wrong, but it was not the same slavery that we experienced in the United States based on race, based on where you came from, based on never being able to get out of it. Like, that was atrociously wrong. This was a slavery that you could, more of an indentured servitude where you could work your way out, where it wasn't based on race. It wasn't based on a color. And so this was a part of their culture. This was a part of their economics. And so Paul writes to that. He's not saying like, oh, because it's in here, we should start doing slave and master relationships. That's not what he's saying. But he's going through this because even in our day, economics is part of life. We need money to live. And the best way to get money is to have a job. I mean, you could try and steal it, but I don't think it's going to work out for you. So he spends a lot of time to that. Seek first the kingdom of God. The writer says before that, you can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. You're going to be devoted to one, and you're going to despise the other. And so if money is your master, or if you're wondering if money is your master, then, then remember that. Um, maybe you, you read the book like, or the little survival guide to life and it said how to trap a monkey. And so it tells the story about having this log, making sure there's not holes on the end, and having a hole small enough for the monkey to get their hand in when they see a shiny coin. And so the monkey sees the shiny coin, wants it, sticks its hand in, grabs the coin, and now can't get its hand out. And that's the same word as devoted to grasp onto. And so if you're wondering, like, am I devoted to money? Can I serve two masters? Are you grasping on and you will not let go? The monkey, all they would have to do is let go and they'd be free. But because they're devoted to it, they cannot escape that grasp. And if we're devoted to this master of money, then it's going to be so hard to talk about wives and husbands and marriage relationships and kids, and family relationships, because there's always this competing interest. There's always this thing, I've got to do more, I've got to produce more, I've got to make more. And sometimes we couch it in, like, oh, I'm just providing for my family. But he's saying, not, not just when it says, let the peace of Christ dwell in your heart. It's not about, like, can I follow my boss at work, and can I follow Jesus in every other part of my life? It's I think it's the question of who who rules and reigns in every part of our lives. Who rules and reigns when we go to work? And I understand that there are unethical and hard bosses and situations to be in. But can Jesus still rule in your life there? Can he still reign there? That's what these verses are saying. Because if he can, then our life is more integrated. Then our life makes sense more. Then we're able to do kind of the rest of these steps. That's why I think there's, uh, you know, sentences and sentences devoted to that slaves and master idea. But it comes from this idea that God is first. And so, and so after God is first, verse 18 Wives submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. This idea is that spouse is second. Now, if you're married or close to be married, or you're thinking someday you'll be married, this is a good place to put this. So if we had a drawing, we had some concentric circles where we said, me and God, God and me, were in the first circle, spouse is in the second circle. And if you're single, I would say this is, this is where vulnerable, intimate friends come in, where you can be honest with people appropriately um, and intimate in the most appropriate, godly way, but where you... It, um, you can get feedback into your life where you're not just alone. So in this, Paul is saying again, it's a new story. It's a new day. This culture would say that women, children, and slaves were things. They were things that you owned. Where a wife really didn't have um, any more duty than to love her husband. And that's not what this is saying. This is saying in this new day I'm going to actually speak to the women because they're a person and they're valued and in my image and because of the cross of Jesus um, Galatians 3.28 in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek there is no slave nor free there is no male or female we are one in Christ he's saying in this new place everybody has a say at the table so women I'm going to speak to you and children I'm going to speak to you and slaves I'm going to speak to you this is radical stuff for the people that would have been reading it. And he's saying, women, be willing to take a second place to your husbands as you're willing to take a second place to the Lord. It's not inferiority. It's, it's a submission like we submit to letting God drive the bus, letting God drive our car. Now, that's, that's the only thing that they're asked to do. And if you've heard um, that this is therefore that women take a second place in everything and Women always submit to men and, um, and they're inferior. That's not what Jesus talked about. And if you heard that from a religious institution, number one, I'm sorry. Number two, we're not a religious institution. We're a Christ centered community where we say we're one in Christ. Now, husbands, two actions. Two actions. Um, one is to love, and the second is do not be harsh. And and this love isn't about being attracted to them or having affectionate feelings for. I mean, that can be love. We lose that love and feeling. But but this is... One writer said it this way. Unceasing care and loving service for her entire well-being. Unceasing care and loving service for her entire well-being. Now... It sounds like husbands also need to put their wife in front of them, to them, have them be first, and them be. second. And uh, as as my wife, as we used to have this conversation a lot, um, you know, you just really need to submit. I mean, the Bible says it. And she's like, "Well, if you did that, if you provided unceasing care and loving service for me and for my entire well-being, I'd have no problem." Oh, so it's back on me. We have a great relationship. Uh, that's, and then it says, do not be harsh. Maybe your translation says, embittered. Um, some, for some reason, husbands seem to have this knack for, I'm just saying hypothetically speaking, they seem to have this knack for like, figuring out this, ad, Like something comes in their mind. Maybe their wife isn't doing something or should do something. And they start to think about that one little thing. And then that starts to upset, upset them. And then they start to have, like this bitter taste in their mouth. And then from the bitter taste in their mouth, they get this bitterness in their stomach. And then it goes from their stomach, they start to get irritated and act harshly about anything. I'm just saying, hypothetically. And, and what the writer's saying is, don't even let that start. That one little thing... Like, lovingly deal with that one little thing. Don't let it get all to this point to this pit where you're just irrational and, and acting harshly. Because remember, again, in that society, the wife would have had no repercussion. She would have had to just deal with it. Now, we don't have to experience that to the same effect, but I still think this idea of living this well-ordered life and treating each other that way is still true. So God first, that spouse second, if you're single, that intimate friend's that you can let into that sacred, special place. And then, and then after that, uh, we have kids. Um, kids third. And, and they say the most important thing that a child needs is to see a healthy marriage. And maybe you can speak to that, where you're like, you know, I didn't really see a healthy marriage attitudes that I just don't get, and it's really hard to do this because I didn't see someone else do it very well. Well, I got the privilege one random day many, many years ago, 15 years ago, I think, to sit in Chap Clark's living room, and Chap Clark was a a pastor, and he writes, and he goes around and speaks, and he does seminary, and he writes books on teenagers, and and so really kind of well-known in that little niche of a circle, and his kids at the time were 13, 11, and 8 And his 13-year-old came up to his mom, and I'm kind of sitting there, and he's not there at the moment. We're waiting for him to get home, and he's like, hey, mom, can I go to this party? Yeah, there's going to be boys and girls there, but, you know, I'll be home by such and such a time. And she's like, "Uh, I'm going to have to process that with your father. He's like, but, you know, Sharon's on the phone, and and she wants to know right now, can I please just go? And she said, well, if you need the answer, and and completely, like, calm, cool, and collected. The peace of Christ, your heart, like, the word of God was dwelling in her. She's like, you know, if, if you need to know now, the answer is no. But if you can wait an hour or two and I can process it with your father, then maybe the answer will be yes. And he's fine. Like, I mean, and I have stolen that for years. If you were in with you through with youth ministry with me, I'm like, you know, you should really pick up this phrase, let me process that with your father or let me process that with your mother. It's great. Um, it gives you a couple more hours to stall. And, but I found that to be so true in my own life where sometimes we need that other person to talk about it with because you know what? If you're a single parent, it is hard work. It's hard. It's not impossible, but it's really hard. But I believe the scripture says if you can put God first... Then, then they can see the peace ruling in your heart as a single parent and they can find security in that. And if, you, if, if your life feels like a single parent because you're always doing like tag team parenting and one of you is with the kids and then one runs home from work and then tag team and the other one runs off to work and it feels like single parenting, this gets really hard as well and the only way I think it works is if you can have really, really good and consistent communication about expectations, about experiences the kids are having, and then based on those experiences, possibly discipline or consequences to those things so you can be on the same page because it is really, really hard. Um, so children are third, and children, the verses say, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Or they will become discouraged. Now, now, if you're a kid who who actually lives in your parents' house, and that means like you feel like an adult, but you're still in your parents' house, um, these are kind of strong words. And and what obey is talking about is a readiness to listen. And that you know, that's sometimes hard, because remember, the older we get, the more we think we know. And, and for me, that peaked about 20, where my parents were just, were just idiots. They didn't know anything. And I was like, invulner- I was invincible, and I could do no wrong. I could not get caught. And, um, and then I started to like get a little bit older, and all of a sudden, my parents' wisdom grew exponentially over and over and this was really hard. And, I, and what it came down to was, number one, I opened myself up to realize, okay, maybe I don't know everything. And I see some of you like, uh-huh. And number two, it came down to a readiness to listen. A willingness to even hear what they were saying. Now, now, if you think about this, and you don't, you don't have to answer it, but if you're in that, oh, I don't know, where you can understand language To the point where I'm still kind of at home. I really don't want to say I'm at home, but I'm there. Um, When you're with your mom and dad and they're having a conversation that they would consider meaningful, are you able to be fully present in that conversation? They're saying something, and are you able to look at them and listen to them? You might not agree with what they're going to say, you might not have a readiness to want to do it, but are you willing to sit and go, okay. I'm going to hear you. Because um, I, I believe, I believe that, that if we did that, like, wow, our, our relationships, number one, would be transformed. Number two, um, this ties back to God. It says, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. It's tying back to this to God. If we can't have a readiness and a willingness to listen to our parents, then I don't think we can really think we're going to have a readiness and a willingness to listen to God to be fully present with God. This is way more about living our life in a right relationship with God than it is about saying yes or no to mom and dad. Um, and, And some of us, I think, I used to think this at least, that my parents just made wacky rules up. Like literally, they went down to this imaginary room in my basement where they had a dartboard of crazy rules. And they put blindfolds on each other and they each got four darts and they're like, go. And then they came out and they're like, okay, we made up new rules for you. And then you just start reading them off the imaginary dartboard. Like, I really thought this. Like, my parents are crazy. They just make up crazy rules. And then I went into youth ministry, and then I started listening to parents, and then I started listening to the students. And all of a sudden, I got, like, both sides of the picture, and I'm like, whoa, maybe, maybe these, these parents made some mistakes. And just maybe they don't want their, their children to make these mistakes. And so they want to try and talk to him about that. And I got this whole new appreciation for what it means for children, young adults, to have a readiness to listen. Again, but a readiness to listen. And then it says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Okay, why not mothers? Well, remember, he's setting up some three kinds of areas of relationships. He set up husbands and wives. And so one would be like, um, in today's the, the society, one with the power, husbands, one without the power, wives, and then he'd say slaves, no power, masters, power, and so then he says fathers because power. children, no power, comes back to um, fathers having the power. I think it'd be very appropriate, and some people would even say it would be translated parents, but the point is, it says parents or fathers, do not embitter your children, or do not cause your children to become resentful. So this embitterness word comes back. And, and, and I kind of think maybe it says provoke in your translation. Do not imp- provoke or do not cause become bitter. And I just thought about all those times where we had a Buick before we had a, uh, a minivan, which did amazing things for my sister and I's relationship, when we could each have our own seat. But before that... We were, like, on our, each of our sides. It got to the point where when we went on road trips, my parents had to take masking tape and put it down the middle. It was bad. And you know what I would do? I would be, like, totally putting my finger across the, across the masking tape. And then my sister would try and slap it. And, of course, I have lightning-fast Jedi reflexes, so she couldn't hit it. And then my dad's arm would come back. You know, the one where it's, like making these massive sweeps, and so I'd contortion up myself to not get in there, and I just provoked my sister. And that's the kind of the word picture that God wants us to have here. Do not provoke your children. Do not, like, sit and poke them or egg them on to the point where they're just like, I can't do anything. I'll never be able to please my parents. Sometimes this comes through in grades. It's an easy you know, a student comes home, and they have seven A's and one C. And they bring it, and they just set it down, and immediately the, um, immediately the parents are like, well, tell me about the C. And, and what that does for a student, what that does for a kid is like, I'm never going to be good enough for you. I can't ever do anything right. And then they start going down this path of, I can't do this right, I can't do this right, I can't do this right, I think I'm just going to quit. And, and this word picture of embitterment or discouragement is really this idea of, like, they're not just bending, they're snapping. They break. Their spirit breaks. And so we have to be really careful, parents, that we're not provoking our kids to the point where they just go, I can't ever get it right. Sometimes that's perception, because you just want to do the best. Sometimes... That's reality. Um, but it's two words. The, the word is discipline and the word from obey, and then encouragement from discouragement. And so uh, I got this uh, research, which I think is, is just great. Um, can you put that graph up for me? If you can see it. If you can't, email me. I'll send it to you. Basically, there's four different types of parents. When we have lots of love... Um, which would be uh, straight up 100% lots of love but no discipline we come to the upper left-hand corner and we get permissive parents and they're their parents who think you know we just need to be fun we just need to kind of let our kids figure it out for themselves we'll just love them and support them and what happens is they get a really low self-image because they find out like life isn't this ideal bubble that you've kind of painted the picture of and then they become inferior and it's just it's bad news. Then we've got in the bottom left-hand corner neglectful. These are parents that have no control or discipline and then no love. So really their kid could do whatever they wanted and nothing would happen. And what happens is these young people grow up and they feel estranged from their family. They feel like there's really no relationship there. Um they often try and find other places Um, in other people. And sometimes God provides a a wonderful, godly family for that person to go into. But it's it's just not the best form of parenting. Then we've got in the lower right-hand corner, when you've got high amounts of discipline but low amounts of love, this is what this verse is talking about. Really, it's about provoking them to rebellion. In this essence of wanting to discipline or control without the encouragement and without the love, basically they're just seen as authoritarian. And they're just like, as soon as I can get out, I'm gone. Or even before that, I'm going to do things where, where I'm gone. And they're really provoked to rebel. But the best place, the balanced place, is called authoritative, where there can be high amounts of love and high amounts of discipline. Not punishment, discipline. Discipline sees what the goal is, and then how can I get to that goal? Because I think every one of us would have parents who would say, you know, if I could get my child to depend on God and be independent from me, that would be great. They can make decisions in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus says, and follow that. That would be great, but that takes high amounts of love and high amounts of discipline. And that comes to this place where children have a really high self-image. They have good coping skills. They understand that life's not going to be fair. It's not going to always work out. But, but with God, I can trust that he's got my best in mind. And so um, it's encouragement and discipline. And if you don't have kids, because again, you're in this single place, you can look at this and go, okay, where do, what do I want to do? And I think you can also go, hey, how can I help out some other people? Like that family looks we- like a little messed up. Maybe they're not doing a high amount of encouragement. Maybe I can come alongside those parents and encourage their kids and encourage them. Or, or maybe gosh, they're just so tired they can't show love. Maybe I can come and show love cuz it's really easy to like love kids, give them a little bit of sugar and you know for a couple hours and you know give them back to their parents. You can do that. Um it, without excess sugar. But after all that, God first, spouse, or if you're single, these close kind of intimate friends, kids third, then comes our work. After all that, then comes our work. Again, I was I was uh, getting to hear Chap Clark years later, or maybe it was a, uh, I think it was him, and his daughter had gotten into some uh, a really bad situation in college. Um, where she just made some mistakes, made some bad choices. And they, they moved their, he went on sabbatical at the university. They moved their whole family where they were a half hour from her because she needed that kind of love and that kind of encouragement. And that, I think, is just a beautiful picture of God first, spouse second, kids third, work fourth. And the scripture says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it like you're working for God. So if you're like, well, where does ministry fit in? I would say yes. Ministry is all those things. Sometimes ministry is work. Sometimes at your work you can minister. In your family you can minister. With your marriage you can minister. And then sometimes it's beyond that. But if you're like me and you're reading God first, spouse second, kids third, work next, you're like, whoa, this is a lot of work. This, I mean, this is almost a full-time job just to do these things. How can I, how can I really, how can I do this? Um Number one, we live in this frenzied culture, so it's really about prioritizing and living this well ordered life. And I bet if I was to sit down on a one-on-one with you and ask you about your work, most of you are able to prioritize your work. You realize you're not going to get it all done, so you go, okay, what do I need to get done today? What do I need to get done tomorrow? What do I need to get done? And that, I think, is a good picture of what the writer is saying that's the thing that I think we can do. We can say, in the time that we have, this day, what are the things I need to do with God? What are the things I need to do with my spouse or my intimate friends? What are the things I need to do with my kids? And then I'll do the things that I need to prioritize for work. Because God wants us to succeed in our family. He wants marriage, it says, is to be this picture of what it means for Jesus to interact with the church. And, and kids are supposed to be this blessing from God. So I think God wants that But we also live in this frantic, frenzied culture, and we have an enemy um, that wants us to to be destroyed. And so it's really, really hard. Um, And yet, look at all the references, if you have your Bible open, to Colossians 3. Look at all the references to Lord, 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 Master in heaven. Submit this to the Lord. Love Her as you love the Lord, submit to Him as to the Lord. I mean, what the writer is saying is it's all connected to God. No matter what age and stage you are in life, it's all connected to God. And as we seek to have Him be in the driver's seat in everything we do, these things will come into place more and more and more. So, what does the next step look like? And this isn't about doing one more thing, I'll talk about that in a second. But maybe through the Spirit, as I've talked, there's been something that's come to your mind like, wow, I need to really, really put Christ, I need to put Jesus in the driver's seat. Or maybe it's like, you know, our marriage has been an autopilot and we just have been existing together, but we haven't really taken time to communicate well, communicate about our relationship, communicate about our kids if we haven't, but I just haven't done that. I really need to spend time there. Maybe... Um, you looked at those verses on provoking, fathers do not provoke, or parents don't provoke your children to be harsh, and you're like, I, I really need to pray that the peace of Christ would dwell in me, or I need to talk to another, another person how to um, really discipline and love my kids well. Maybe that's the place where, or, or I need to get in a, a life group where we're going to talk about parenting, because this is tough. On the flip side, maybe you're a young person and you're like, you know, I'm the one who's been harsh with my parents. I'm not giving them enough credit. I'm not really listening to them. I'm not having this willingness to obey. Um, I need to restore that relationship. Or maybe it's this idea of work and work's really gotten out of place. And so you have to figure out how can work, work come farther down the list. I don't think it's about just doing one more thing. God isn't about, like, just add this to your life and you'll be a new and improved religious person. What the writer is saying is he's inviting us into a new story where Christ rules it all, which is why it's so appropriate to take time right now to celebrate communion. Um, Because because when we come with our heart's right to communion and we come to this table, which is, by the way, open to anyone that accepts Jesus, then... um, Christ is saying, I'm doing something new. When he takes this bread and he breaks it, hang on. Little teeny cups today. When he takes this bread with his followers and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, it is broken for you. And when he takes the cup, And he says this cup is a new covenant. He's signifying that the old is gone. That it's not about doing one more better thing. That he invites us into this new place where we're transformed. Where all of a sudden when Christ is truly in the driver's seat, all of a sudden we have a willingness to listen to our parents. All of a sudden we have a willingness to to love our spouse with exorbitant amounts of love. Not just be attracted to them. We have, we have the ability to, to work for a boss like we're working for Jesus. And, and it's work because it's Christ in us. It's the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. That's why it's so appropriate to invite us to communion. So I've got some servers who are going to come up. Um, and today we're going to um, do communion in our seats. Um, and so if our servers could come up, we're going to pass out the bread uh, and then I'd invite you to hold it, and then in a moment we'll partake of it together as a, as a group. And so in Matthew it says, while Jesus was, was eating, he took the bread and he broke it, and he gave thanks to the Father, and he said, this is my body, take and eat, it is broken for you. And so as you um, take your bread, just hold it until we um, are all served, and then we'll eat it together. was with his disciples, he realized that his time was coming to an end and, and they weren't quite ready. He hadn't quite done everything. He wasn't completely confident that his disciples were going to get it. They even argued right before they took the bread and the wine about who was the greatest. And if you come today and you have burdens and you're like, I don't live a well-ordered life. I haven't gotten along well with my family. I don't raise my kids well. Know that Christ still invites you to the table And he said, this is my body. It's still broken for you. It's still, it's enough for you. So as you take and eat this, remember Jesus is enough for you and for the family that you have or you come from. So take and eat. after this he took the cup and he gave thanks to it in heaven and he looked at his disciples and he gave it to them and he said drink from it all of you for this cup is the cup, the new cup of the blood of my covenant and it is poured out for the forgiveness of sin and again please hold as we can partake together Jesus looked at this cup, he knew, he said, the next time I drink of it will be after his death and resurrection. And again, Jesus didn't just come and say this, and say this new cup is about your personal or my personal forgiveness of sin. It surely is that. But what he's saying is it's so much more than that. It starts this revolution and this restoration process that that really won't be full until we reach heaven, but can start now. And so as you drink of the cup today, know that in this newness, we can find a newness in our family, a newness in our relationships, and that Jesus can rule it all. So the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink.